Hello everybody uh, and Kia Ora. In today's webinar, we will talk uh, about the updates made to part six of the guide to road design, uh, roadside design, safety and barriers. We have more than 900 people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with one of our presenters, Richard Fanning, who will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. This project uh, was delivered under the Road Safety and Design Program, which is managed by Michael Newstick. A bit of housekeeping. Uh, our presenters will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session uh, for 15 minutes. The guide and the slides can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, uh, please use the questions icon on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, um, include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. Also, let us know if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, um, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session um, using your email registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, uh, you can also find Austroads in your podcast app. So our presenters and agenda for today, uh, we will first hear from Richard Fanning, uh, Principal Engineer, Road Design and Traffic from the Department of Transport Victoria. Richard will introduce the project and the team uh, who worked on it. Then uh, Professor Rod Troutbeck from Troutbeck and Associates will take us through the changes uh, made to part six and the contents of sections five and six. After Rod, uh, we will be joined by Chris Kanditsiotis from Austroads. Uh, Chris will talk about the Austroads Safety um, Hardware Training and Accreditation Scheme, or ASHTAS. Um, so welcome to all our presenters, um, and over to you, Richard. Thanks, Katarina. Um, just going to provide a, a, a high-level update to the project we're talking about today. The update to Austroads Guide to Road Design Part 6, Roadside Design, Safety and Barriers, was initiated and managed by the Austroads Road Design Task Force. New Zealand and Australian representation can be seen on the slide in front of you. And I'd also like to acknowledge the important contribution from the um, Austroads Safety Barrier Assessment Panel. Um, the project team comprise me as project manager with the update delivered by Professor Troutbeck with, as I said, contributions from, from the various jurisdictions involved in the task force and ASVAC members. We can go on to the next slide. Um, just very briefly, the Austroads Guide to Road Design structure looks like, looks like the slide in front of you with the, the part that we're talking about today highlighted. Um, every time I see a structure like this also highlight the importance of being across part one of the guide, which, which puts the use of the, the whole guide in, in context. Next slide, Karen. Now, onto, onto the, the project we're talking about today. There's been a previous project um, over the last few years on updating guide to road design part six, sections one to three. Um, those sections were primarily uh, concentrating on, on risk, the risk assessment side of, of roadside design. And it's important to note that this work's actually not part of today's session. It was presented at the previous Austro's webinar. Um, in addition, there's, there's probably a number of jurisdictions at the moment working on establishing intervention threshold guidance for the network. So some further guidance will be appearing on that over the next period of time. 
the latest project updated the remainder of copyrighted on part six from, from section four onwards. Um, there's been significant updates to information regarding selection, design and installation of roadside elements. Uh, the work draws on evolution guidance materials that uh, jurisdictions have been working on over the last few years and further works by the by ASBAP and in particular Professor Troutbeck. Now this webinar will concentrate on, on the new material added as part of the latest project. If you want to delve deep, deeper into the topic, just very quickly before I go into this slide, if you want to delve deeper into, into, into the topic, there is an, an Australia's research report, and the title's in, in front of you, and you can find that on the Australia's website. Um, as I said, if you, if you need to dive into further detail of the, the topics that Rod, Rod's will be addressing next, uh, it's there. I'm handing you over to Professor Trapek now, who will take you through some of the main changes to Part 6. Right. <clears throat> Firstly, the layout has been changed. Section 4 has been revised. This section describes the treatments for different hazards and roadside features. It describes possible treatments but does not give the design details. It describes what to do, not how to do it. The new Section 5 deals with the fundamentals of safety barrier systems. This is similar to the TMR training document and is intended to give background information for those less experienced in the design of safety barrier installations. I think you should look at it occasionally. Part 6 deals with the design and installation of safety barrier. And it will be discussed in the next webinar, so I'm going to leave the detail until then. Section 7 deals with the installation of other roadside safety devices. It does include some guidance on security bollards, which is worth a look at. Other sections have not changed from the last edition. Associated with the new, new material in the body of the guide, there are some new appendices, and these are highlighted in the slide. The terminology has changed slightly. Appendix F describes the consequences of likely impact conditions. You are generally unable to describe a typical impact or even the most severe impact. However, this information in this, in this appendix from the work of Andrew Burbridge improves our understanding of impacts with barriers. Appendix G describes a message to evaluate the length of need on curves and when the barrier is flared. Now I'll move to discussing the contents of part five, section five. Now I won't be discussing all aspects of the material in, in, in this section, and we'll concentrate on barrier flexibility, working with points of redirection, run-out areas, and containment levels. Barrier flexibility is a concept developed by Dr. Burbridge. Flexibility is a dynamic deflection divided by the impact severity, which is the lateral kinetic energy. Both of these terms are measured with a MASH full-scale crash test. The outcome is the Acceleration Severity Index, or ASI. The ASI is a product of the vehicle's acceleration in the three principal directions, X, Y, Z. While the ASI was established in the US, it is an important term in the European standards for evaluating barrier systems. This graph is a plot of the flexibility of the barrier and the recorded ASI from full-scale tests. And you'll see there's not a clear distinction between the ASI values for different barrier types. Using the same data, but this time concentrating on the impact configuration or the impact uh, you know, configuration, there are clearer relationships. If you look at little crosses, they all appear to be in, in, a, in an exponential line. This slide indicates that flexibility should be used to describe a barrier's performance, and we shouldn't use how it's constructed to describe it. The only other thing to note is that flexibility is a continuous scale. Some barriers that look similar can have different flexibilities. This is described in more detail in the research report. This is a graph of the flexibility of different systems. A wide range of flexibilities for wire rope barriers results from different rope tensions, post spacings, and post-release mechanisms. 
the difference in performance between wire rope barriers is marginal. Flexible W-beam systems and wire ropes have comparable flexibilities. Proprietary thry beam systems are stiffer than the flexible systems, and non-proprietary W-beam and the modified thry beam systems are stiffer again. However, these barriers are now legacy products, meaning they should not normally be installed in new installations. Obviously, the concrete barriers have the lowest flexibility. Part six no longer refers to barriers as being semi-rigid, but refers to a description or the flexibility of the system. We have now moved from using deflection to working widths. Working width indicates the dynamic deflection, system widths, and the roll allowance. It is measured in full-scale tests. We have adjusted the definition to be in line with the European standard E in 1317, and working width is then measured from the furthest element of the barrier on the traffic side, whether it's got a foot or not, to the furthest extreme on any part of the system or vehicle during and after a full-scale test. For temporary barriers, this includes the feet on the bottom of the barrier, I spoke about, and for concrete barriers, it's the lower edge. Indicative working widths are given in section five. We will discuss design working widths in the second webinar. This typical value is presented here. The 2011 edition of the Ashto Roadside Design Guide has included the concept of the zone of intrusion. This diagram indicates where the truck cabin and the cargo box are likely to intrude over the barrier. While the concept seems to be sound, the likely loads when the cargo box impacts the structure are unknown. They'll depend on the stiffness of both the box and the structure it hits. Looking at the data behind this diagram, there was only limited testing on barriers over 900 millimetres high. Concrete barriers lower than 900 millimetres high offer no advantages over more flexible systems. Vehicle roll is substantially reduced for concrete barriers over 900 millimetres high. You need to get to 900 millimetres before you start to get reduced vehicle roll. We have moved to working widths rather than the zone of intrusion. This table lists the working widths for concrete barriers. The TL3 test involved a 2270 kilogram Dodge Ram, which did not intrude behind the barrier, hence the low working widths. The working widths of TL5 barriers 1370 millimetres high is significantly reduced from those for lower, lower barriers. If you look at the literature, be sure to note that the definition of a working width may be different to the one we've used here, or the one we're applying in part six. To illustrate the point, here are two views of a TL5 impact in, with a 1370 millimetre high barrier. The barrier has a single slope at 11 degrees to the vertical, and the maximum body roll was also 11 degrees. Both the cab and the trailer are able to lean on the barrier and restrain the body roll. Points of redirection. I'm sure you'll appreciate that if a vehicle impacts a leading terminal close to its leading edge, the terminal will gate and the vehicle will pass behind the system. This is trajectory one, the red one on the left. The same, at some point along towards the terminal barrier interface, the system is able to redirect the impacting vehicle. We call this the approach point of redirection. Downstream of this, the vehicle will be redirected. This is trajectory two. Impacts further along the system result in the vehicle being redirected. The trajectory three, four and five in blue. The barrier redirects vehicles by applying a force while the vehicle is in contact with the barrier. The ability of the barrier to apply this force reduces close to the trailing terminal. Consequently, trajectories five and six also result in the system gating. Departure point of redirection identifies the last point downstream where the barrier system will redirect the impacting vehicle. Indicative values are given in part six and the process is, is described in more detail in the research report. 
This, show, this slide shows the results of a MASH test at the six posts upstream of the anchor, the downstream anchor, on a Midwest guardrail system. It clearly shows a gating behaviour near the trailing terminal. It illustrates the point we spoke about a moment ago. Well, how do we use the departure points of redirection? The points of redirection are a property of the safety barrier system. The approach point of redirection must be upstream of the leading point of need, and the departure point of redirection must be downstream of the trailing point of need. On carriageways with two-way traffic, departure point of redirection is not used. However, it is used on one-way roads, at overlaps and barrier openings. The points of need define where a barrier is required. They're based on the dimensions and locations of the hazards. The terminology in the previous editions of part, of part six and in Ashto Roadside Design Guide have been confusing. Hopefully the use of terms points of need and points of direction, length of need and redirective sections of the barrier are simple. Run out areas for terminals to longitudinal barriers. This concept has been used before, especially in the Australian New Zealand Standard AS, NZS 3845 Part 1. These requirements, requirements have been reviewed by ASBAP and, uh, and based on that, we have revised the dimensions. There's also a need for run out areas for crash cushions. Note the different dimensions for those from those for terminals. And again, the area needs to be traversable and free of hazards. The aim is to be more explicit about containment levels, performance levels, and test levels. Containment level is a property of the road or roadside. It describes the characteristics of impacts when the vehicle is to be contained, redirected, or captured by the barrier system. Simply put, it defines the type of impact we should be designing for. It can be described quantitatively or using a test level. Performance level. Performance level is, a is an engineering, a bridge engineering design parameter. It defines a containment level using a risk assessment. Performance level describes the impact performance of a bridge structural element. Performance levels are low, regular, medium, and special. The test level is a barrier system property. It describes the most severe successful impact tests on a safety barrier system. The notion is to include a simple approach to designing a safety barrier installation to designing a concrete barrier in a tunnel and a bridge parapet. The containment level is chosen before the design begins. In a structural design, the performance levels is chosen again before the design again begins and defines design loads. For a roadside barrier, the containment level defines the test level that the barrier must meet or exceed. There may be two containment levels, a root containment level and a site containment level, if it's a high-risk site. Design containment levels are a function of design vehicles to be contained by the vehicle. There's design traffic flow proportionate by the number of heavy vehicles, the road's operating speed, the road's cross-section and the proximity to the hazardous infrastructure elements, adjacent land use, and the consequences if a barrier is breached or penetrated. Choosing a containment level. The starting point is to use a TL3 containment level. You can use a TL2 containment level at low-risk sites, but you need to justify it. TL4 and TL5 containment levels can be used if there's a high proportion of heavy vehicles, heavy commercial vehicles, or if there's a need to protect high consequence infrastructure or shield high consequence land. All, at times, barriers need to be structurally designed. These will be undertaken using the performance level and the bridge design guides. We'll now move to comments on section six. Again, I'll only discuss a selection of topics. Curbs in front of barriers. This graph is a plot of the bumper height of an 815 kilogram vehicle 
traversing a 100 millimetre high sloped curve at various speeds and angles. The horizontal axis is the lateral distance from the curve. You'll note that the curves are substantially different. At any location of a barrier given by the lateral offset, vehicles will impact the barrier at a range of heights. For example, I've drawn a blue line to indicate the face of a barrier 600 millimetres from the curve. At this location, a barrier could, uh, there could be some vehicles submarining and vaulting and others vaulting over the barrier. The graph shows at least one test speed and angle combination is insufficient to evaluate the effect of cur the curve. For this reason, simulations have been used to evaluate the interaction and the effect of curves. This test demonstrates a possible outcome from a barrier curve interaction. It is a MASH TL3 test with a barrier 2.44 metres behind a 152 millimetre high curve. And you can see what disastrous outcome can result. The recommended offset of barriers from curves. You should either install a barrier close to the curve as in the upper figures or install it some distance away when the vehicle has a chance to um, become stabilised. For barriers close to the curve, the barrier height of the design height of the barrier is based on the pavement height. When the barrier is some distance from the road, the barrier height is relative to the ground at the post. The minimum offset of a curb to a barrier face. These values are in table 6.6 .6 of part 6. The values for wire rope and flexible barriers were close together, and so we made them the same. However, from my analysis and from simulations I've seen, it is noted that flexible W-beam barriers are less affected by the offset from the curb as a wire rope systems. So in constrained situations, I recommend using a flexible W-beam system when close to a curb. Running out lengths. These are used to define the length of need. The data comes from two studies, the Hutchinson Kennedy study published in 1966 and the Cooper study published in 1980. There's been substantial discussion on, the, on these data. In fact, I chaired a session at TRB one time when tempers flared between the participants on the relative value of each study. And the data has been reviewed and reviewed as a consequence. Ashtar reconsidered the data and revised the values in the road sign design guide downwards from the previous edition. These values have been in part six. The runout lengths are a function of the distance of the year for the errant vehicle to be stopped. However, these values do not account for modern vehicles cruise control and where drivers drift off the road. Angle of departure method. The critical trajectory is related to a particular departure angle. You'll note the strong correlation between departure angles recorded by King Mac and others in the US and Sam Dioki and Jeremy Woolley in Australia. This enables us to use the King Mac database, which was far more extensive. The combined running out and angle of departure method. The combined method first calculates the length of need using the Ashto runout length. It then calculates the departure angle. The leading point of need is moved upstream if the departure angle is greater than the 15th percentile value or seven degrees. Similarly, the trailing point of need on one-way roads is defined by the 85th percentile departure angle. The use of this combined method lengthens barriers that are installed to shield the hazards further from the road. A recent study by Rexinger and others in 2021 found that the length of need based on the running out method was too long for hazards close to the road and too short for hazards nine metres from the road. Let's look at an evaluation diagram. The running out length and the location of the hazard defines the vehicle departure path. Where this path crosses the line of the proposed safety barrier installation defines a leading point of need and the angle of departure. If this angle is greater than seven degrees, move the departure point upstream, as shown here. 
The length of need for streams and other hazards extends some along distance from the road, from distance from the road. The leading and trailing points of need are based on the distance the hazard is from the road. For a hazard like a stream, what distance do you choose? Part six defines the leading and trailing points of need as twice the runout length. That's the H total length. The coefficient two results in Rosinga research who recommended doubling the length required by Ashto for hazards nine metres from one. Soil strength. MASH specifies a performance level for soils in crash testing, generally referred as the Ashto strong soil. If barriers are to perform in a similar fashion to the test results, then the barrier needs to be installed in similar soils to the Ashto strong soil. The question is how do we know whether the soils at the installation site have sufficient strength? How does the soil strength relate to the strength of the test site? Using soil profiles and, and valuations from the Ashto guide specifications for highway construction, the Ashto strong soil has a CBR of 60 and a weak soil has a CBR of 8 to 10. The appropriate soil strength must be available at the installation site for the barrier to perform as it was tested. Minimum design length. The minimum design length of a barrier occurs when the approach points of redirection are coincident with the points of need. The length of need between the, the points of need coincides with a section of barrier system that is able to redirect vehicles. Practical minimum length of, of a barrier. The minimum length for a barrier is the length that just allows the vehicle to be redirected. Barriers with this minimum length may not provide suitable coverage for a hazard. Perhaps more importantly, barriers short in this length are unlikely to redirect a designed vehicle. Practical minimum lengths are given in the guide. The impact here is on a 22.9 metre long Midwest guardrail system, which is a relatively stiff system. The system safely redirected the vehicle and the results are consistent with the information given in the guide. Overlaps. Overlaps in the direction in the direction of travel start with a second barrier, in this case the wire rope barrier, behind the first barrier, W beam barrier. Designed for the second barrier to be offset for the first from the first barrier by the dynamic deflection of the first barrier. So it's the making sure you have enough deflection of the barrier closest to the road. You can use its working width if you, in, if you don't have the dynamic deflection. Align the departure point of redirection with the first barrier with the approach point of redirection of the second. Staggered median openings. This diagram shows two critical errant vehicle paths. Between the two paths, the errant vehicles will not be redirected by the barriers in front. They will gate. A back-to-back -back section on the second barrier is to contain and redirect these vehicles. Two-stage protection. This example is from the Victorian Department of Transport. In this case, wire rope barriers are offset by three metres from the road and also shield the concrete barrier. The concrete barrier is used to protect the support, bridge pier or high consequence infrastructure. The wire rope barrier is designed to redirect the lighter vehicles up the TL4 so, and the concrete barriers to manage heavy errant vehicles. While this example shows a wire rope barrier, it could have been a flexible W-beam system. Points of need for two-stage protection. The length of need for the wire rope barrier is calculated using the combined method described above and in section 6.9.1 of part six. This gives the X1 term, which you'll see in the, in the guide. For trucks which incidentally leave the road far less frequently than cars, design departure angle is 15 degrees. The concrete barrier needs to be extended to cover the area where trucks are likely to encroach on the medium or verge. The orientation of concrete barriers on super-elevated roadways. The guidance has always been controversial. The original guidance was reviewed for part six. The Ashto guide for selecting, locating and designing traffic barriers was first published in 1977 and contained this image. It's the first time I'd seen 
this image um, displayed. The guidance at that time indicated the best compromise is to install barriers vertically. This differs from the guidance in early editions of Part 6. The TMR supplement was consistent with the original Ashto practice. In 1982, Mo Bronsted and, other, and others tested vehicles impacting an 815mm high concrete barrier installed vertically or perpendicular to a super-elevated pavement. They concluded there was not a dramatic difference in performance for the two barrier orientations. In 2019, Dapa Mazugi and others simulated a mashed 311 test into an 815mm high barrier. There were more failures when the barriers were vertical, and so they recommended using higher barriers. So on super elevated roads, it is now recommended concrete barriers be 915mm or taller installed vertically on all roads. Areas shielded by a barrier. At times, a barrier is installed to shield a hazard, but this may allow for additional bushes and other, other like lights, um, treatments to be shielded by the safety barrier. If you do this, be mindful of not making a problem for the future. A few other minor comments. It's often thought that the loads on the barrier are strongly related to the gross mass of the vehicle. In fact, the load on the barrier is more strongly related to the weight of the individual wheel bogies. For an articulated vehicle, there be three, this causes three major impacts. The implications is, is the barrier can have a number of significant impacts, which may be potentially very damaging to the barrier. And this is explained in the research report. Guidelines. Based on the literature view, the term shylines has been eliminated in the text. However, the distance is used to find areas where longer flare rates are required. Barriers close to the road should have a more gradual flare rate. Flare rate effectively increases the impact angle, so you, you, you try not to have too much flare. Other discussion topics in the research report include barriers for motorcycles, barriers for pedestrians and cyclists, treatments for embankments and drains, treatments for culverts, aesthetic road safety barriers, frangible masts and poles, and the mass moment of inertia. The mass moment of inertia is important in understanding how the pole will fall. Barriers at intersections and property accesses. You might have a look at the research report before it comments on these issues. I'd now like to hand over to Chris to discuss ASHTAS. Uh, thank you, Professor Trapnik. I'm today going to briefly talk to you about the Austroad Safety Hardware Training and Accreditation Scheme, or ASHTAS for short. ASHTAS aims to deliver a high standard and nationally consistent set of training outcomes for individuals who install and maintain road safety barriers in Australia and New Zealand. ASHTAS has been developed over a number of years by a committee of all roads and transport agencies and with industry representatives. This has been very much a cooperative and collaborative approach. A threshold was achieved in August of last year in which Austroads commenced the implementation stage and aiming to effectively complete the developmental aspects that were outstanding and to roll out ASHTAS to the market proper. A key part of this implementation is in fact working with the Austroad Safety Barrier Assessment Panel or ASPAP. And I'm sure that the listeners uh, to this webinar would be very familiar with ASPAP. As you know, ASPAP assesses the crashworthiness and suitability of road safety barriers and associated devices for deployment in Australia and New Zealand. As a result of an assessment, uh, ASPAP makes recommendations for use. ASPAP represents a natural synergy or a synergetic link between it and ASHTAS. And that is because ultimately, systems that are recommended for use need to be uh, implemented in a manner in which people who are installing them are well trained 
and understand not just the type, but the proprietary system itself. Austrade has engaged the services of Lantra, which is a, a, U, a UK or English-based organisation, to develop the training and accreditation scheme for the installation and maintenance of road safety barriers in Australia and New Zealand. Ashtat Lantra, I should say itself, will not actually be delivering the training. Uh, this will be done through a series of approved training providers, which are specific to Ashtas. The role of Australian and New Zealand approved training providers is to be responsible for delivering the Lantra-based training material courses and oversighting the ongoing accreditation of individuals. These RTOs are effectively organisations which form a relationship with Lantra to deliver the training content and the ongoing accreditation or currency for individuals in the program. At this very moment, Lantra is in fact engaging with Australian and New Zealand RTOs to determine their relationship and their desires to become approved training providers. But the door is not closed. The opportunity is still there and training providers seeking to become approved um, for ASHTAS should engage and contact Lantra now. Um, if you don't have the details of Lantra, please send an email to Austroads and we can ensure the connection occurs. What is the actual training? Um, what do installation individuals undertake? Um, there's basically three broad training packages. Um, at the most basic level, the entry level, is everyone who works in or around uh, the installation or maintenance of road safety barriers will have to undertake the operative course. And then there's a basic level course on effectively ensuring safety and uh, on-site awareness of what is happening when you're operating in th these settings. Uh, we then have an installer course, which is the next level up, which effectively means it's a generic course for anyone who is installing road safety barriers. Um, it's generic in so much as it deals with safety and is as across all types of road safety barriers. And then we have the specialization that occurs with what we call the lead installer course, which is a course specific for every type of road safety barrier that you would be installing. And associated with that, the individual proprietary systems that might have unique additions or modifications to the generic type. And by type, we mean um, wire rope safety barriers or as they call them in some states, flexible, W-beam or thri-beam, or what we used to call rigid barriers, but now are less flexible barriers and so forth. So there's a whole um, spectrum of types, and within each of the types, there is the proprietary systems as well. And that's an important message I want to leave for road safety barrier suppliers. Um, uh, the role of ASPAP is not changing. The role, the need to suppliers to be putting their systems through the ASPAP process will continue and subject to that assessment recommendations for use will also continue. The additional requirement, the add-on that I should say, is to ensure that all the necessary training material that is associated with that approval will now be part and included in that consideration. And for a road safety barrier supplier that takes the that, that there are two pathways for delivering the training material. One is you can use the Lantra supplied training templates and literally cut and paste your training information into the template and make that as part of your submission. Or two, you can go directly to Lantra and request them create the training material specific to your product. The decision is yours as an RSB supplier. It just depends on which pathway you want to take. I should also say, that as I speak now, Lantra is currently reaching out to all suppliers of existing road safety barriers to have their training material produced for their proprietary products. So that's an important uh, aspect as well. Um, that's all I wanted to say. Um, final arrangements are currently progressing and we aim 
to launch this in the next few months. Um, so thank you for the opportunity and time. And now we'll move on to the Q&A part of the presentation. Sorry, I'm just trying to get my, my screen back. Um, here we go. Thanks for the presentations, Chris and Rod. Um, we've got a few questions to start, but we could probably tackle a couple more if, there, if there's some. And um, I guess we'll start off with one for you, Chris, for a start, leading on from the, the last presentation. Are there any recertification requirements for the courses on offer for the installers of road assets and elements? And what are the frequencies and any refresher training requirements as well? So I don't know if there's any, any thinking in that space. Um, look, there's some broad thinking. Um, the reality is that every state and territory and, and New Zealand have taken slightly different pathways. So um, transition arrangements, uh, recognition of prior learning and such arrangements will be each jurisdiction will make that consideration um, based on the applications that are put to it. So. Um, I'd love to be able to give you a direct answer at a, at a national level, but it, it is very much a state-by-state -state decision. Um, and uh, recognition of prior learning is on the table. Yep, that answers another question we had. Um, going on the road, got an interesting one, which, which is probably an interesting answer. Um, the evaluation shown in slides 38 to 40, do they consider the changes in centre of gravity with electric vehicles? Don't know if you've got me wrong. No, you're on mute, I think. Oh, is that better? Thank you. <laughs> I was pressing all sorts of buttons here and nothing was happening. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so, so I guess one, 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 for the, one for the future, Rod. Um, it's sort of interesting when you think about it a bit. Yes, I, I, I've, uh, I can receive the question, and um, you know the the information from 38 to 40 talks about the run-out lengths and angle of departures and those sort of things. The data was collected by reconstructing crashes, and in, in America, with some several hundred crashes that have been reconstructed, and in Australia, was a lesser amount, lesser number. So it doesn't really take into account uh, the changes in in uh, in the vehicle fleet and doesn't allow us to predict what change would be for the high centre of gravity vehicles or different centre of gravity vehicles with electric vehicles. And I guess the other, the other point, Rod, is that the, the MASH test defines the vehicle type using those tests and I'm not sure that that type of vehicle is included in that, that suite of vehicles at the moment. Well, that's for the crash testing that no one's mm -hmm. thought about uh, testing for um, electric vehicles because basically what we're looking for is the highest uh, Center of gravity vehicles, um, and so that, and, and to also have a standard vehicle to, for the test, although it's not specified as a vehicle, the specifications are, test, are demonstrated or documented. But the important thing about crash testing is we're not testing the vehicle; we're testing the barrier. So what we're trying to do is to make sure the barrier can be uh, uh, performance can be understood. And more importantly, that we can compare one barrier system with another barrier system. Somebody asked in slide 31, should we be considering high proportion of, of uh, commercial vehicles or what sort of commercial high proportion should be used? We did start out by, look, by using about a 20%. So, um, and that was based on, on Victorian practice. We, we stopped doing that in the in the latter parts of the drafting of, the, of, the, of part six because we felt that we couldn't really be explicit about 20%. So um, I would say you could treat 20% as being reasonable. What do you do with um, TL, between TL4 and TL5? Well, it's the sort of vehicles that you're looking at that uh, um, containing 
that you might need to go to a TI5 containment system. And again, it's a high proportion of those higher vehicles, those larger vehicles that you'd use in, in a TI5 system, that's articulated vehicles, then perhaps you should be looking at a TI5 system. But we haven't been specific about that. Um. Uh, Keep going, right, if you want. I could keep yeah. just going down the questions and just answering them as you see them, if you like. Uh, working with has increased um, significantly with the update. Um, working with hasn't really changed. It's the way we've measured it has changed. What we have done, though, is to account for the working with for a 4.6 metre high vehicle, whereas once upon a time we recorded the, the working with the vehicle. And, and if that was much lower than that, we best reported it. But of course, being um, trying to make things more equal, I increase the working width to to reflect a 4.6 metre vehicle. Um, what does it mean for existing infrastructure? Nothing. You don't go and change the existing infrastructure as as a result of any changes in Part Six. But what we would hope you to do is, if you're looking at the new installations, you use Part Six. Um, for example, with the update, all tunnels in Australia would have cladding inside the working widths. Well, that's not necessarily a problem, but you have to understand that, that, that if you have a barrier there and the vehicle leans over the barrier, takes out the, the cladding, then that's, that's a risk, that's a cost. It's a cost of, of, of risk because what will happen to the cladding? Will the cladding become a, uh, um, a, a debris that, and, and uh, projectiles? What do we do? They need to be checked and, and potentially replaced. Well, again, it's it's about the, giving you advice for new installations. Um, I'll move to the next question. Is there a design approach to follow in lieu of the shy lines being removed? Well, all the shy lines said really was that drivers would, would shy away from barriers. And we found no evidence of that. But what we said is that barriers close to the road should have a lower flare rate. So we sort of used the evidence that people could use with the shy line material in the past, but we haven't referred to it as being a shy line. And, and in fact, it doesn't, it, it doesn't need to be there. All we've said, if the barrier is closer than this distance from the road, then you should use a more gradual flare, flare rate. Um, uh, we could throw a couple of questions to Chris if you want. Rob, Please. Um, one of them, Chris, is, is there a date that all materials to be completed and prepared for Lantra and when would the rollout be? I was going to say the materials are, are effectively completed. What we're doing is a final check through Lantra uh, to ensure that um, it's up to date, even with the guide today that's been, been released. Um, we are waiting on Lantra to be uh, up front uh, with their announcement of the approved training providers. And then the next step is um, ensuring that each state, territory and New Zealand are ready because they will make their own decisions and they're not um, with respect to engaging with industry and timeframes and so forth to roll out in each jurisdiction. So we're talking uh, a few months. Uh, we're not talking anything beyond that as a time frame. Um, I, I noticed another question there, uh, Richard, about um, how will new technologies and new initiatives be captured within the learning outcomes? Um, this is a very dynamic process, and that's why we have uh, the ASHTAS reference group, which comprises both jurisdictions and industry. Uh, we want to be ahead of the curve in so much as understanding what is coming so that we can prepare not just the traditional Austroads guides to reflect um, new initiatives, but also ensure that um, at the same time, the training is delivered as well. So um, we're working closely with industry to find out what's in the pipeline. And one important dimension is new proprietary systems um, will have to be considered uh, to ensure that any necessary training that deviates from the type or is specific to that proprietary type um, is captured and is part of the approval process. So we're very conscious of this. We, we live in, a, in an industry which is, um, you know, technology evolving and we need to have a 
a training environment that matches those expectations. Thanks, Chris. Um, back to Roy, how about the one, could you please, please, please confirm if barriers that are higher than 915 millimetres uh, rigid concrete barriers were investigated and found to be more effective for larger trucks? Yeah, the, the higher you make the barrier, um, the less roll of it the, you get from the barrier over the barrier, therefore the less working width. So they become more effective. The typical height of, of W-beam systems now, the, the uh, flexible W-beam systems is about 800 millimetres high. And so you, if you wanted to have a barrier that was only that just marginally higher than that, well, 900's about it. And in fact, when we looked at the transition, the transition height that we had was 900, about 900 millimetres high. Might, might be 915. But nevertheless, the question says, please confirm if the barriers are higher than the 950, barriers that are higher than the 915 millimetre rigid concrete barriers were investigated and found to be more effective for larger trucks. Um, the, there's two, two parts to this question because you can get um, TL4 systems that will redirect trucks quite happily but they we typically have a larger larger deflection and larger working width. So in that sense, if you're going to put in a concrete barrier, the, the notion is don't put one in that's lower than about 915 millimetres high. And then the concrete barriers that are that high, that tall or higher, have the advantage that they have less roll, less, less working width and uh, provide a better protection. I mean, a good example of that, Rod, is some of the discussions had around heavily trafficked urban motorways with a concrete barrier down the middle, trying to get sufficient height into the system to prevent that rollover. We've had a few examples of nothing of vehicles rolling over the top of them. Yes, yeah. Um, another question there is, is why is the run out area for crash pushes different for gating terminal? The difference is the behaviour. In a gating terminal, the vehicle just basically drives through the barrier to the terminal. In a crash cushion, what happens is it's compressed and the vehicle often spins around yours. And it's quite a different behaviour, and so therefore the dimensions are different. Now, what we did in, through ASBAP was to look at all the tests that we could see to establish those numbers. So they're not numbers dreamt up, there's not numbers from a single test, it's numbers from a number of tests. Um, next question, I'll go back to Chris. Is Lancia to prepare training for public domain products? Um, the, the answer is yes. Um, and I noticed another question about um, what about the designers? Uh, is designers part of the uh, ASHTAS process? And we're very conscious of that part of um, the training, but at the first rollout, they're not. Um, but we're very aware that um, that is an important dimension. Um, but uh, the first stage includes uh, people on the ground uh, working, installing uh, different systems. Um, that's not to say that uh, designers will not be included in the future. And there's one here about new technologies and new initiatives and how they, they're captured within the learning and ongoing development framework. Yeah. Um, uh, we're, we're, as I said earlier, we're very conscious of the fact that uh, new technologies uh, are constant, especially in this space. So we've established a mechanism, sort of a governance framework, I'd call it, to ensure that we're ahead of the curve. Um, we've established the, we've converted the ASHTAS steering committee to the ASHTAS reference group. It comprises both jurisdictions and industry, um, and they will not just be reviewers of training material, but we want them to be able to flag things that are coming in the future, products. Uh, we want the industry to be telling us these are things that are coming in the, in the future, so we can prepare the training material to align with the approval processes that ASPAP has. Um, and also, we expect um, new products, which are, they might be a, a, a different, a new, proprietary system, but within a type to have the appropriate training 
material developed to align with that as well, and then approved or recommended for use, I should say, as part of the ASPAP process at the same time as the, the actual hardware is approved, the training is approved as well. So uh, a very dynamic process, uh, ensuring that uh, we want industry to tell us of what they're planning to be introducing uh, ahead of the curve so we can get the training lined up at the same time as the approval of the hardware is uh, recommended for use. Thanks, Chris. And Rod, I've got a built-up residential one that's pretty common, really. Um, how does a guide apply for built-up residential or commercial areas where the required distances, such as runoff areas, cannot be achieved? At these locations, the purpose of safety barriers is more to protect the assets and reduce damage caused by runoff vehicles. So I just wonder if you've got a comment about how to deal with where you can't achieve the, the run-out run run areas suggested. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the work on installation of safety barriers has, re has revolved around rural roads. When you come to urban roads, it's quite different. You, you haven't got the room to, to put the barrier in the length that you'd like. So you, you're basically putting in what you can, where you can, to be as effective as you can. Now, there's there's lots of things that we've been that that we could do there that we had that haven't been done in the past. Because you remember, to some extent, the development of Part Six is based on what we know internationally. So we don't want to be dreaming up too much on what we think is a good idea. But I think there will be a lot more work and consideration given to urban roads in the future and future elements of the guide, part six, and there are the present. Uh, one thing that we're, we're debating now is, is, is really working with. I mean, all the working with based on full-scale crash testing, 100 kilometres per hour. How does that relate to urban areas? So the question is a good one, but a question which I can't give you a lot of answers to, except to say, do the best you can in urban areas. Think about what the barrier is also a hazard in in urban areas, so you trade that off a little bit, understand the risks you can. I know that's difficult. And then you look to the experience of somebody like Richard Fenton. Thanks, Rod. And uh, yeah, most of the time, you're, you're really forced into a situation where you're trying to select a barrier system to use within that zone and, I guess, the things it's competing with for space under the under the ground, such as subsurface drainage and services and the like. So it's location uh, is often not that flexible. So it's and a matter of, course, of picking the right the right the right barrier system for the situation where you we're in. Yeah, and, and in that sense, you're limited on on at times on on the work in which that you've got. In any case, you know that you you know you you may not be able to use a wire rope system in some places. Yeah, um, but just there just needs to be more work on that. Unfortunately, there's nothing in the around the world that's been working on that that, that subject. So, um, but I think with a little bit of logic, a bit of common sense, a bit of, of uh, discussion, group discussion, uh, and I think particularly through ASBAP and through the technical where we pay technical notes through ASBAP, we could get some good good guidance in the future in the near future. I think that's just about time. And I'd like to thank uh, Chris and thanks Rod for the Q&A. There's, there's certainly a number of other questions which we'll, we'll get to after the, after the webinar and respond to. Back to you, Katerine. Thanks so much, uh, Richard, and thanks Rod and Chris um, for your presentations. Um, I just have a couple of slides left uh, before we let you go. So you can see on your screen, we have a few webinars coming up. Um, if you haven't already, please register for the second uh, webinar on part six of the guide. Um, so we will focus on the process to design the installation of a safety barrier. Um, in our other sessions, we will talk about waste material in road surfacing sustainability in road tunnels um, and updates to Standards Australia for bitumen and related uh, material. So if you're interested in any of those sessions, please visit our website and register.
And um, when we close out today's session, there will be a questionnaire uh, for you. Uh, please fill it in. Um, let us know what you liked or didn't like about the session. Uh, we really value your feedback. We read it all uh, and it helps us to shape our future uh, webinar program. So once again, the session today has been recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe um, and enjoy the rest of your day. We will see you next time.